The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. As I record, millions of Americans are voting for the President of the United States. Some of you will hear this episode before the election is over. Others will likely listen after the election is long over. I hope my conversation with William Howell and Terry Moe will have relevance no matter when you listen. William is the chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Terry is a professor of political science at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Our conversation explores their book, Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy. These are familiar topics for regular listeners of Democracy Paradox. William and Terry break from many critics of Donald Trump, though, in their defense of the presidency as an institution. They have tremendous faith in the presidency to deliver effective governance. Many ideas have been considered as an antidote to populism. William and Terry believe effective government is the solution to the populist backlash. There's some truth in their argument. But more importantly, democracy must always strive for effective governance. Because unless democratic governance is synonymous with effectiveness, authoritarians have a justification for their rule. So without any more delay, this is my conversation with William Howell and Terry Mell. William Howell and Terry Mell, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you guys for joining. I'm excited to talk about presidents, populism, and the crisis of democracy. Those are three topics I feel come up on a regular basis on, on the podcast and in my blog. So I'm excited to be able to talk more about those with some people who have clearly thought quite a bit about it. Why don't we start out with, with a question that is at the core of your book. What is the crisis of democracy? The proximate cause is Donald Trump, and he has used the power of the presidency to attack our institutions, violate democratic norms, and undermine the rule of law and threaten our democracy. But Trump isn't the main cause of, of this crisis, brought on by massive uh, worldwide forces, globalization, technological change, immigration that brought economic harm and cultural anxiety to millions of Americans. And uh, our government didn't have any responses to these things. Our government was totally ineffective at dealing with them. And the result was a populist rage against the system, against a system that people saw as ineffective and also as, as corrupt and illegitimate. And Donald Trump came along and took advantage of those conditions. And those conditions will still be there after Donald Trump is gone, right? So the real problem is populism and the conditions that gave rise to populism. And what we need to do is to recognize that even after Donald Trump rides off into the sunset, those conditions will still be there and they need to be dealt with because we're going to stay in a crisis of democracy until they are dealt with. How long would you say the crisis of democracy has been sitting dormant, waiting for the right person to undermine democracy? Well, democracy is always vulnerable. When you have institutions that fail to meet challenges that are put before it, challenges that majorities and supermajorities of Americans expect to see action on, and there's failure, 
a demagogue can step forward and can leverage the anger and disaffection that's born of that failure for his, it's almost always a he, his own political gain. The ones that we talk about in the book that we highlight, the ones that Terry just mentioned, are ones that have been playing out for decades. And we talk about it in the book, the, the, the trends in immigration, the big sort of modern trends in immigration that we're talking about really sort of take off in the 70s and 80s. You start seeing a, a movement, we walk through them. The, the liberalization of international trade, which, which to be clear has real advantages too. This is not an argument that globalization is an unmitigated kind of disaster. The thing to point out is that there are, there's concentrations of harm that are propagated by globalization and that lead to sort of being laid waste to communities and to people losing their jobs and all kinds of anxieties being set forth. And, and so the argument that we're making is not that the government should not have, say, liberalized trade or you know, assumed a kind of protectionist posture. What we want to recognize is that with these massive changes around the globe that offer certain advantages, there also are very real harms. And it's the government's failure over the last 30, 40 years to attend to those harms that laid the groundwork for, that were sort of prerequisites for a populist to be able to step forward and to leverage those, to channel those for his own political gain. And that, that has set in motion this crisis of democracy that's before us now. You know, one way to get a little perspective on this, just to add to what William said, is that globalization began to sort of gain steam uh, in the late 70s, 1980s. And then in the 1990s, there was a lot of talk about and concern about immigration and about trade. And Pat Buchanan ran a very uh, vitriolic populist campaign. Uh, he wanted to eliminate immigration entirely. And he was very protectionist and a, a, a very populist campaign. And he got some support, but really in the end, he went nowhere. And I think this was a precursor to Donald Trump, but it happened more than 20 years ago. You know, these elements were, were getting sort of put in place, but the Republican establishment was in charge of the Republican Party. So you had George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney getting the nominations. And there was this populist ferment going on beneath the surface that was building. And it wasn't until after the Tea Party and then with Donald Trump that it really exploded and became sort of the major force within the Republican Party. But it has really taken a long time for this to bubble to the surface and, and sort of be liberated from the Republican establishment. It's interesting you mentioned Pat Buchanan back in the 1980s, because I just had a thought in my head that that was around the same time that France saw its populist backlash the first time. Was it still called the National Front at that time, the political party? I think they changed their name with yeah. Marine Le Pen uh, a yeah. few years back. But her father had run a campaign around the same time that Buchanan did and found himself in the runoff for the French presidency about the same time that Buchanan ran his campaign. And, and again, Ross Perot ran his campaign for the Reform Party. Yes. Yeah, so there's Jean-Marie Le Pen, who runs in the late 80s. And I mean, he's far off on the right and certainly is leveraging kind of nativist sensibilities among France. And is a, there's a reaction against immigration generally. That's true. You know, a theme of our book, the reason why the crisis of democracy is going to persist is because these forces are in play. It's also worth noting this isn't unique to the United States. A big reason why we want to sort of highlight Trump as an opportunity to learn what populism looks like, but not to sort of understand him as the proximate cause, is precisely because populism has risen in Eastern Europe and Western Europe in the last four or five years in response to huge immigration flows. There's a very long history of populism in Latin America, which is born routinely of widespread corruption campaigns, failed political institutions, and inability of their governments to attend to the problems that they face. And so part of the story, I mean, a big part of the story that we're, we're telling is, is that we're not exceptional. The challenges that democracies face are, are not it's not about American democracy, they're embedded in democracy itself. And when democratic institutions fail to meet the needs and wants of their people, routinely over long periods of time, this anger grows. And that anger 
is available for a demagogue to step forward, to tap into and to say, forget this broken, antiquated, rigged political system, vest your hopes and aspirations in me. And that's the threat to democracy, because as soon as we make that move and we start believing that Trump will deliver us where our democratic institutions cannot, we're in real, real trouble. Margaret Canavan wrote, populism is a shadow cast by democracy itself. And I think that gets right back to your point that this is something that it, it's not as simple as, hey, democracy is supposed to save ourselves from somebody like Trump. Uh, the people still have a role that they have to step up and be able to deliver and be able to take steps to stand up for things. You guys have a quote in your book. On, on page 64, you say that the truth is that the people are not reliable champions of democracy and our elite governed checks and balances are not guaranteed to protect us from a populist demagogue. The Constitution didn't stop that strong man from capturing the presidency, and it didn't prevent him from exercising presidential power in ways that are dangerous and undermine the rule of law. I think in many ways, what we're beseeching our country to do is to be more vigilant. There are no guarantees that the democ our democracy will continue to thrive. There are no guarantees that our political institutions so carefully designed by our founders will somehow prove effective at solving the problems that we now face. Quite the contrary, in fact, in many ways, they're designed to fail and that we have a responsibility to think for ourselves to rework our institutions so that we can meet the challenges that stand before us and to stand up for our democracy. And that's, I think that's one of the big themes that's playing out right now in this presidential election. I think again, what we wanna say is that just because you get rid of Trump, I mean, that's really important if what you wanna do is stand up for the democracy, but all our work still lies ahead of us going forward. What we're not doing is putting our faith in the people and just thinking uh, that the American people are so firmly grounded in democratic values that they will step up and save this system. Under certain conditions, the people, certain people can step up and attack the system. And that is what a populist movement does. Uh, and this goes all the way back to Athens. The Athenians were the ones who built the first democracy, and they recognized that democracy contains the seeds of its own destruction. And the reason is that when people get to choose their own leaders, they can, under certain conditions, like when the government is performing badly, when things are bad in their society and threatening, a demagogue can arise and become a rabble rouser, attract support, and attack democracy. And that's it. In a nutshell, that's what populism is all about. And so I think the, the key, if we bring it to present day, is not in saying, well, the people, you know, the American people uh, so support democracy, they're not going to take this too far. Uh, the key is in making sure that we have a government that works. And if we have a government that works, then people will be satisfied with the government. They won't participate in an anti-system rage. That's why what we try to emphasize is that effective government is at the core of this. If we have an effective government, we can defuse the threat of populism to our democracy. There's, some, there's a point here that I don't want us to lose that, that, that's really worth underscoring here. You see in populism a deep critique of democracy and our political institutions. And as a deep critique that in some ways is warranted, that in fact, the system is broken, that in fact, it has failed to deliver on behalf of many Americans. But what populism does is it, it's something of a bait and switch. It starts with that deep critique, but the move is not then to say, okay, what we need to do is roll up our sleeves and get to work and rebuild it, produce a more effective government. We need to shore up our institutions so that they better represent the will of the people. What the populace does is it taps into that anger and disaffection, and then it, it continues to blow on those embers once the populace assumes office, right? There's not a move in which the populace says, hey, what we need to now do is rebuild the administrative state and make it better than it was before. Make sure that it does, in fact, attend to the challenges 
the harm that they have felt in the wake of globalization in order to build a new comprehensive immigration system. That's not what Trump is doing at all. What he's doing is sowing disaffection, nurturing that rage, and that's far from constructive. So that's where, look, you can offer a deep critique. One should offer a deep critique, both of our political institutions and our democracy as it's currently instantiated, and then set to work on trying to set it better. And I think that is something that plenty of people do. We've seen a number of people on the left do that, but they're not populists because their move is not anti-democratic and it's not in the service of just fomenting more anger. It's in an effort to say, we got to get to work, ladies and gentlemen, and, and fix our government. Terry kind of brought us back to, to really the key theme of the book. Effective governments is the antidote to populism. That's, that's the key takeaway I took from the book. Yeah. You see the presidency as, as a key institution to delivering effective governance. Uh, Terry, can you give us some thoughts on how the presidency has improved governance over American history? Look, we have... A, a system of government that was designed 230 years ago for 4 million farmers. It was a government that was, wasn't expected to do much and it uh, wasn't designed to do much. It's, it's uh, filled with checks and balances and with veto points. It's extremely difficult to get anything done. And when you combine it with federalism, it only makes it worse. Right. And so if you're in a, a modernizing society and American society has always been modernizing ever since the uh, Constitution was written, then what you need is some way of having a government that can address the problems of modernity. And that means somehow coordinating this government and making it work right and leading it. Well, who's going to do that? Presidents are going to do that. And so the system has always relied on presidents for leadership. It can't have leadership through Congress. There's absolutely no way. So we need to rely on presidents. Presidents, unlike members of Congress, are uniquely motivated by the national interest, right? They have a national constituency and they're motivated by their legacies, right? And they, they want to be great, right? They want to have their faces on Mount Rushmore. And in order to be regarded as great, they need to achieve enduring solutions to the nation's problems. Presidents are, are really the champions of effective government by comparison to Congress. And so if we want our government to be more effective, we need to rely on presidents and we need to give them the kinds of powers that allow them to move this system in a more effective direction. And the the qualification there is, well, what if they become too powerful and try to act as dictators? And that's what we're juggling in this book in talking about the promise versus the fear. The promise is that presidents are champions of effective government. We need them. They have so much to offer and they're motivated to do this. And the fear is if they have too much power of the wrong kind and the wrong person occupies the office, that person can bring democracy down. That's what we're seeing with Donald Trump. That's the fear personified right there. And come up with a system that is a better functioning presidentially led system that is also protected against autocracy. One of the things that you really stressed was presidents care about their legacy. And that's one of the driving factors towards them producing effective governance. I'm interested to know your thoughts. If you think Donald Trump cares about his legacy, do populist leaders, populist presidents care about their legacy? Is it a different kind of legacy that they're focused on or do they have completely different motivating factors? Yeah, Trump cares about his legacy. He's already said he wants to be on Mount Rushmore. He's not joking around. He thinks he's great. He wants to be great. He wants everybody to idolize him, but he's a populist. And, and what he wants to be known for is for what populists do. They attack the system. They attack the deep state. They're disruptors, right? He's been totally disruptive to our international relations, to the entire international system. He's been disruptive in domestic politics, politicizing the Justice Department, committing obstruction of all these things. He's been 
in his view, a spokesman for the people in bringing a corrupt, illegitimate system to its knees. And that's what he wants to be known for. That, that's his legacy. Well, it's a legacy like no other president in American history. And I think for most of us, this is a very dangerous agenda that he has for himself. So here we have a president who is an outlier. And while other presidents are champions of effective government, for Trump, the emphasis on legacy leads, leads him to be destructive and to actually undermine effective government. He does want to be on Mount Rushmore. I think what he really wants is a mountain all unto himself. He is all about the greatness that is him, um, <laughs> but it's not in the service of enduring achievements of the, site, of the type that we were accustomed to thinking about. Who are the great presidents? All right, we name them and then we say, why are they great? Well, they're great because they created programs and initiatives and institutions that endured and that solved problems. This isn't to say that all presidents agree about what a good program looks like or what the government ought to be in the business of doing or that all presidents get it right, but that presidents by virtue of where they sit in our government have profound incentives to pay attention to the long-term, to think about national considerations and to build a set of lasting, lasting achievements that make them champions of effective government more so than anybody else in our government. Like they're the best we've got to work with on this front. That isn't to say that Congress doesn't do some things and even do some things well. But if you're looking for somebody to solve the problems of global climate change or provide the leadership that we need for rising inequality between the rich and the poor or articulate what a comprehensive, well-justified, um, intellectually well-justified immigration system or healthcare system might look like, our best shot is to look to presidents. And I think that's what modern American history points towards. It isn't to say they always get it right. Of course, they sometimes get it wrong. It isn't to say that we should bow before them. Of course not. And there is the fear that we talk about in considerable detail. If I could say one more thing though about the, the sort of the fear and the promise too, because we want to keep both of them in play, but it's not in the service of like plain vanilla moderation. It's not like, you know, not too hot, not too cold somewhere in, you know, sort of what we're aiming for is tepid. Like we're not aiming for tepid. It's more like a two-pronged test. We have the wrong presidency than the one that we need. And so when we reimagine what the presidency ought to look like, when we think about new possibilities of powers to give or powers to take away. We ought to say, first, will this leverage the president's national outlook, his penchant for effective governance? Will it productively do that? And then second, when a demagogue occupies the White House, can he leverage the particular power that we're thinking about in the service of his own personal, private, anti-democratic objective? That's the sort of two-pronged test that we got to bring to bear, which is then what we think about when we walk through a host of reforms. I'd like to just take a second and just emphasize you see yourselves as political scientists that are looking at this from an analytical point of view. And while we're talking very negatively about Donald Trump, that you have very strong and positive things to say about other Republican presidents in the past, such as George W. Bush. So I'd like to just kind of emphasize for just a second that it's not necessarily just a purely partisan anti-Republican message, although there is some negativity towards the construction of the current Republican Party, but a lot of that has to do with the leadership of Donald Trump. I'd like to ask you in terms of institutions... How does Congress contribute to ineffective governance? That's something you've mentioned already. Can you explain that just a bit more? Look, Congress as an institution is really well designed to channel parochialism. It consists of 535 voting members from districts and states 435 of whom have to get reelected every two years. And they do so by saying, look what I did on behalf of the organized interest back home. There are reasons why Congress is a kind of bastion of special interest politics and why members of Congress, person by person, think about the pieces and not the whole. They pay attention to the part of a healthcare system or an immigration system that really has a big impact on their constituents back home. And what that leads to is 
a legislative process that's just riven with squabbling and carve-outs and buyouts being delivered to organize interests and the production of laws when they're able to pass laws that are just larded up with all kinds of junk, which have very little to do with the problem that they claim to be solving. And so what we end up choosing when we think about the activities that we observe within Congress, we get to choose between gridlock, which is common, and gridlock can be not just the inability to act in the presence of majorities who would like to act, but even the inability to have constructive, serious-minded conversations about what ought to be done. So we're choosing between gridlock and the creation of these unbelievably complex omnibus bills that lack any internal justification, any internal coherence, but that spend massive amounts of money. And, and, and this isn't to say that they, don't, they do nothing, right? They, it's not that they do nothing. They do do some things, but they woefully underperform. And so we see a tax, a tax code policy in, in our country that's obscenely complex and lacks any, nobody would build from first principles. This is why we have an immigration system that is such a mess and a healthcare system that is such a mess and why we can't even have a responsible conversation within Congress about climate change that even recognizes the problem on its own terms and then thinks generatively about how we might respond to it for reasons by how it's designed is a, is a disaster. And so if you're looking for an institution to provide the leadership that we need to meet the big problems of modernity that we have to meet, Congress isn't gonna lead in this front. They're gonna represent lots of localized interests. They're not gonna provide the leadership we need. So we've got to, so, so that's why then the presidency by virtue of where he sits offers something that runs in scarce supply and that we sorely need. I think one reaction by some people might be, well, gee, you're just picking on Congress and it isn't all that bad. Uh, yeah, these days there's a lot of gridlock. Congress has a difficult time doing anything, you know, but in the good old days, back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, there was a lot of legislation and Congress produced all kinds of bills and they were uh, addressing national problems. And what we need to do is uh, try to get back to the good old days. You know, and, and we can rely on Congress. The fact of the matter is, uh, the good old days weren't good. Uh, in fact, if you look at the bills that Congress was passing, they were sort of typical congressional bills that contained, uh, here's a provision for you, and here's a provision for me, and here's a provision for that person. And if we add up uh, enough of these little patchwork things, then we can get enough votes to pass this thing. Okay, pass what? You know, it's just some cobbled together, godforsaken thing that's supposed to address a serious social problem, but it's no longer a well-justified, coherent attack on those problems, and, and they're ineffective. Take a look at a book by Peter Shuck, who is uh, in the law school at Yale, uh, and his book is Why Government Fails So Often, and it is a compendium of laws that go all the way back. And basically the, the point of the book is our government has always been ineffective and it's had its high points, uh, the Civil Rights Act. But for the most part, Congress has been passing very, very ineffective laws for dealing with our social problems. And we have this government that's ineffective. And finally, the chickens have come home to roost and millions of Americans are fed up in part for good reason. And unless we do something about this, populism is not going to go away. Robert Caro wrote just a masterpiece of a biography on Lyndon Johnson years ago. One of the volumes was called Master of the Senate, where it focuses entirely on Lyndon Johnson's years in the Senate. He emphasizes how much everybody was disappointed in the Senate itself for its inability to get things done back in the 1940s and 1950s. So you're right. This is a problem that hasn't, that has existed for a very long time. It hasn't necessarily been resolved in terms of the Senate. And you mentioned the civil rights legislation. Part of Caro's point is the reason why the Senate was able to turn around and pass impressive legislation under Johnson's 
uh, administration was because he was able to streamline legislation by creating a new powerful role for the majority leader to be able to have significantly more power to be able to get things done. And it's that type of power that today Mitch McConnell uses to make sure things don't get done. The exact opposite. Uh, it's that kind of power that speakers of the House use to keep legislation from even meeting the floor when we know that the votes are there to get things passed. It was incredibly disappointing to me and, and most Americans when Dreamers legislation was not capable of being passed, even though everybody acknowledged that there were enough votes in the House and the Senate to get something passed. There was a general agreement and everybody was disappointed at Donald Trump for removing the executive order. And he literally called Congress's bluff saying, well, if you don't like it, pass legislation. And they were incapable of doing it, even though there was broad support. This brings me to the idea of your, your concept of fast track legislation for the presidency. I found that really interesting because it would resolve the problem if there's support across the aisle on different issues that people would be able to vote on something rather than having it determined by the majority leader or the speaker of the house that they didn't want to put something on the floor for various reasons. Can you explain what fast track legislation for the presidency would be and how that would help us avoid gridlock in, in the administration and in Congress? The list is long of policy issues where majorities recognize not just the need for action, but even converge on particular solutions, but Congress can't see its way to actually enacting something that makes sense. It's a very, it's a long, long list on gun control and um, environmental change and worker safety uh, and, and moving on healthcare and on immigration. There's a widespread recognition that things aren't working right now and that there's some, some basic things that ought to be done that then don't get done. There are moments where individual legislators kind of rise up and behave counter to you know, the script that they've been given. And so there's Lyndon Johnson, who's riding in on a white horse and breaking through all the institutional impediments and delivering us to some kind of solution. It's a curious way to think about our government, though, when we say what we need to do is have individuals who will rescue us from that, those institutions that don't allow for mere mortals to set to work in the service of attending the challenges that we face. So what can be done? Um, one thing that we done in order to leverage the promise of presidential leadership is generalized version of fast track authority. So fast track authority is something that's been done in trade policy for a long time. The president settles on the terms of international agreements on trade agreements, and then goes before Congress and says, here, this is what we've settled on. You now have a certain period of time to deliberate on it, and you can vote it down if you so choose, but you have to vote on it on an up or down basis. And what that allowed the president to do in issues involving trade is to advance national interests so that these trade bills didn't become larded up with all kinds of carve outs and exceptions for every imaginable district, because that's what legislators are supposed to do. They make their mark on legislation. See, I did my part with all my creativity, ingenuity, and hard work by ensuring that you know, the good people of on the south side of Chicago don't have to abide by some provision. So it was an effort to get away from that world by giving the president fast track authority that then allowed for the emergence of a liberalized trade order, which advances national interests in important ways. We want to see that generalized to other policy domains so that the president can go forward and say, here, this is what we're going to do on health care. This is what we're going to do on immigration. And then Congress, you have to vote on it notably on immigration, both George W. Bush and Obama had comprehensive immigration reforms that they wanted to put forward that enjoyed the majority support, not just of citizens, but of legislators within Congress. And in each, each instance, they died at the hand of either a supermajoritarian requirement in the Senate or the second time under Obama because Speaker Boehner refused to bring forward a bill that had passed in the Senate recognizing that it would have passed also in the House and he didn't want to bring it forward because he saw that it was going to split the Republican Party. So what do majority leaders do? They pay attention to their party 
That's the kind of frame in which they think about and they evaluate policy and the interests that they act on behalf of. And in that sense, they're no substitute for presidents that have more of a national outlook and think about their place in history. So yes, what we want to do is to enliven the legislative process, force legislators to have to take hard votes that right now their majority leaders often protect them from and render judgment on bills that are proposed by the president. They, again, they can vote it down, but they got to vote. In ways, it feels radical because it's a departure from the way we've done things in the United States. But the way you just described it sounds very similar to what the rest of the world does through the parliamentary system, where the par- prime minister wants to put forward the proposal. They put it forward. Parliament votes on it. There's, there's no question of whether or not parliament's going to vote on it. Now, they might do some, some negotiations beforehand with their coalition to make sure that people support it. But once they put it on the floor, there's a vote. The United States is peculiar because a proposal is brought forward and there's no guarantee that it will actually see a vote to determine how its members actually feel about it. Yes, there's a near certainty to the contrary that it's going to be am- amended beyond recognition. Right? That's going to be watered down seven ways to sunshine. It's going to be just that we're not going to get leverage on the challenges that we face. So that's exactly right. It, there also are other presidential systems that give presidents these kinds of powers. We are a real outlier internationally in terms of the agenda setting power that we give to presidents. And we would do well to learn from from the example of other countries in this space. You know, a a big problem with our legislative process is that it's so bad and so filled with veto points that presidents, in order to get anything done, have to rely on unilateral action. Well, I think most people would would rather not have presidents do that because uh, at the limit, it smacks of autocracy and, and that's the way Trump is using it. So if we had a streamlined legislative process where the president knows that if he comes up with a proposal on health care or whatever, anything, Congress has to vote on it. And each house has to vote in a majoritarian manner. No filibusters, no holes, no nothing. They have to vote on it. And they have to vote on it in a certain period of time, like 90 days. And they can't change it. They can't throw in a million and one different provisions or rip it apart and put it back together in a a form that doesn't uh, even resemble its, its original form. We have the one actor who's the champion of effective government is the one who's designing the proposal that everybody else is voting on. So I think this would be a real step forward and it would also be a step away from unilateral action once presidents realize that they can get things done legislatively. And as a democracy, we should be doing things legislatively. This comes back to what William said, where it's not just about about giving the president more power or trying to take power away. It's a two-pronged approach where this is a proposal that does literally that. It gives the president more power in the legislative process, but in a way, it makes it less likely they're going to use unilateral action through executive orders that, in a sense, limits the power of the presidency at the same time, or at least the potential for abuse. Yeah. And we talk about some specific ways in which we might curtail the exercise of these unilateral powers, not just count on the fact that the legislative wheels have been greased, that then he's going to forego opportunities to act unilaterally. We talk about some specific ways, in particular involving uh, the Declaration of National Emergencies, in which we might limit presidential power. But you can hear that like, if you see presidents as being champions of effective government, then the question is, how might we leverage them? What are the powers that we give to presidents? We don't give them proposal making authority at the front end of the legislative process. We consign the president to the back end to wield a veto, to kind of push back against the concoctions that Congress creates on its own. It's not a particularly good use of of presidential authority, nor the reliance upon these unilateral powers, which are troubling, not just because when they're in the hands of a demagogue, they can be used towards all kinds of anti-democratic ends, but because They can introduce a measure of policy instability. They're often kind of piecemeal in orientation. They're very narrow in scope often. That this isn't how we attend in a kind of systemic, comprehensive way to the big challenges that we as a country face. And this is why we want to say it isn't just that we have 
a presidency that's too weak or too strong is that we have the wrong presidency. We've got to reimagine, we've got to rebuild this thing to leverage the particular promise that presidents have to offer. Again, recognizing the very threat that they represent, that they can, they can present when and if a demagogue assumes office. And so then we lay out a whole host of limits and checks and reductions of executive authority. Let's go into some of those reductions. There are two key ones that you mentioned. One of them is to insulate the Department of Justice and intelligence agencies. And a second one is a limitation on presidential appointments. Are you advocating a more independent bureaucracy that has more ability to make decisions on its own? Or is this simply maybe a special case in, the, in terms of the Department of Justice or the intelligence agencies? Well, it's really both. You know, the, the Justice Department and the intelligence agencies are the most powerful and most dangerous agencies in the entire government. If you have an authoritarian inclined president who takes total control over those agencies, totally politicizes them and puts his loyalists in top positions, then... God help us all. That's the way to bring down democracy. And it is crucial that these agencies have a degree of independence and insulation so that professionals can be in charge and don't have to follow the personal political dictates of an authoritarian inclined president and can act on behalf of the Constitution and the nation. So that's number one. I mean, these agencies need to be singled out and insulated. Yeah, I was going to ask you just to explain how you would see those agencies insulated. It's one thing to say, hey, let's do it. You guys give a little bit of an explanation of how that's going to be done and how that'd be similar to other offices that we have that are insulated from political, uh, yeah, from political decisions. There's, there's one way to do it. Um, and I think Maybe for starters, it would be good to set up a a commission or something to consider how to do it. But, you know, we have independent agencies throughout the government. You know, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the FCC, the SEC, the NLRB, and so on. Those agencies are run by multi-member boards, and those members have fixed, staggered terms, and they're hired on a, a bipartisan basis, right? And they can only be fired for cause. So um, they're a model for how we could run uh, the Department of Justice. There's no reason why, you know, the Department of Justice should be like this uh, right-hand mechanism of the, the presidency. That's dangerous, you know? And so there are these means of, of running a department or running the intelligence agencies through, say, multi-member boards and also through restrictions on removal and long terms. You know, like, for instance, now uh, the, the term of the FBI director is 10 years, but he can be he can be fired. Right. So the president can just fire him like that. Well, he shouldn't be able to. Right? And the president or I mean, the, the person like the FBI, CIA directors have been fired yeah. despite having long terms. George uh, George H.W. Bush is a great example. He was the director of the CIA, if I remember right heading into the Carter administration. And Carter asked him to go, even though his term wasn't up necessarily. So this isn't the first time that this happened with Comey. This is something yeah, that's been endemic. Be rewritten. Uh, and there will be constitutional issues. Fine. You know, what we need to do is to do what's best for the nation and challenge the courts to do the right thing. And, you know, politicization is, is the other part of this. And we recommend putting uh, limits on the number of presidential appointees. So now presidents appoint something like 3,500 people to the executive branch. If you look at other uh, well-functioning democracies uh, around the world, those governments may only have 100 political appointees, just a tiny fraction of what we have. We're a complete outlier. You know, we politicize the bureaucracy when we don't need to. In other countries, the administrative state is run by professionals. Right. And they put a premium on expertise. And there is a trade off between political loyalty and expertise. What we need to do is move toward a government that has far fewer political appointees and is much more professional and more insulated for that reason from politicization. Again, what we're rooting for here is a more effective government. 
and an effective government is one with a robust administrative state that has expertise, right? That's where you have people with knowledge, subject-specific expertise, and that can formulate a response to the kinds of catastrophes that come before us. Like, and, and the catastrophe that's before us right now is this pandemic. And if you compare the response of our country to the response of other countries, and you sort of, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment. And it's an embarrassment that's born not just of the populace who's trying to meddle in, actively meddle in and undermine and marginalize the experts within the CDC and elsewhere, but also the disinvestment in the CDC and the fact that it is not designed in ways that it could be, given the kind of support and insulation that health organizations in other countries enjoy. So the presidents are, are central to this book, because not because we have an infatuation with presidents, it's because we see them as being so vitally important to attending to this issue of effective government. That's what we're rooting for. And part of effective government is a bureaucracy that actually works. A lot of the literature about populism has been focused on how we've removed things from being democratic to being things run by uh, the administrative state or by bureaucracies. Yasha Monk uh, wrote a piece called The Undemocratic Dilemma, where he was making this exact point that a lot of a lot of things such as the courts, the bureaucracy, monetary policy has been shifted from people to technocratic elites. And he attributes a lot of this to the rise of populism that you see in things uh, you see in his book, People vs. Democracy. I'd like to ask you, because your basic thesis is the idea that if we have an effective government, that is the most important antidote to populism. Do you feel some of the technocratic, some of the bureaucratic solutions that we've had have contributed to policies that are neoliberal, that have contributed to some of the results that have brought about populism at all? Or do you think that's a misreading of history over the past 50 years? I think there's a lot in play in the question that you just asked. Um, of course. So let me tease out a couple of things. One is, is that we're, we're arguing on behalf of a competent, well-designed, rational bureaucracy. And it's a kind of bureaucracy that we observe in other countries, but it's not the kind of bureaucracy that we have. And so what, we, what we're rooting for here is the development of, the cultivation of, the rewarding of expertise. That that's going to be vital to a government being able to attend to the challenges that stand before it. It's really hard to figure out what a, a coherent immigration system is going to look like. Like, it's hard. You need people who know the issue and have spent their lives studying it, um, setting to work on it. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing that I want to say in response is there is this notion that, you know, the bureaucracy is like the deep state, you know, and it's all these people who are using the levers of power to keep their foot on the kind of throat of average American citizens. And we certainly recognize the need for democratic accountability and that there are important and valuable ways to keep a bureaucracy accountable through investigations and hearings and budgets and a, a civil service a merit system that actually makes sense and is well-designed. Where we want to push back, though, is on the politicization of this administrative state, where you can just put in all your lackeys and their cousins to uh, an agency to do your own private bidding that that kind of it's not just that that demoralizes the the kind of the experts within a particular agency it drains the talent it leads them to leave office it makes it a less attractive place for people to apply to people don't make costly investments in expertise when the, when the people who are running the show are kin and next of kin of the president so yes we need uh, systems of and robust systems of democratic accountability. What we don't need is a rampant kind of runaway politicization, which undermines this kind of base level of expertise. You know, I think the fact of the matter is that policy is always in the hands of elected officials. My bureaucrats aren't just sitting around making, making up policies. They're ultimately subordinate uh, to elected officials. I think that the bureaucracy turns out to be a whipping boy, a convenient whipping boy for populists because they're anti-system and they're also conspiracy theorists. You know, it's like if, if things aren't going the way they want them, then they can, they can say that there's some conspiracy, that a deep state 
you know, that's moving things in the wrong direction. The fact of the matter is that every modern society needs a professional expert administrative state, period, if you're going to have an effective government. And I think the thing about populism is that its leaders are not interested in building an effective government. They're interested in destruction, in attacking the system, and they need to be seen for what they are. This attack on the uh, unelected officials who are somehow engineering society is a scam. Every modern society has an administrative state and must have, and the people at the top were elected officials. They're accountable. They're the ones that we elect. And so bottom line, if you have an administrative state that's really professional and works and is effective, people will be good with that. They'll be okay with it. There won't be a raging populist movement, right? There may be malcontents in society, but the air will go out of the populist balloon if you have an effective government and therefore if you have an effective administrative state. I want to conclude the, our conversation by just noting that so long as democracy is truly about a government of the people, effective governance is necessary for democracy to succeed. I, I think we can all agree today that the recognition of this will be a turning point for our democracy. So thank you for joining me today, William and Terry. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm with you, Justin. Thanks. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank University of Chicago Press for a copy of Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.